Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Southeast Radio. Welcome back to Southeast Radio's Business Matters with me, Carl Fitzpatrick. Well, my final guest this morning is one of the most powerful women in Europe. Emily O'Reilly has had an illustrious career, starting out as a journalist and broadcaster. She then became Ireland's first female ombudsman, before being appointed European Ombudsman by the European Parliament in 2013. Emily, thank you very much for joining us on this morning's show. In your opinion, how do public servants view the office of the Ombudsman? You're more than welcome, Kyle. Good morning. Well, I think in general, we had, when I was Ombudsman, and I think that's continued under, under Peter Tindall, um, a generally very good and a very positive relationship with with the administration. Of course, sometimes, you know, they didn't particularly like being complained about. I mean, that's normal. I wouldn't like it. You wouldn't like it either. But I think um, there was a very strong sense within the Irish public administration that the the role of the Ombudsman in holding the institutions to, uh, to, to account, really, on behalf of the people, was a very important part of the infrastructure, if you like like the architecture of the administration. And even though perhaps they had to grit, grit their teeth sometimes, I think in, in general they, they felt that the Ombudsman's recommendations should be followed unless they were completely crazy, and uh, which they, I think, and hope never were. And of course, you're appointed European Ombudsman by the European Parliament back in 2013. What was your goal when you assumed the role of European Ombudsman? Well, I actually had to make, um, I had a very simple goal, and simply to make the office more visible and more effective. I've been quite familiar with the Office of the European Ombudsman because the European Ombudsman shares a network of member state ombudsmen. So I'd been Ombudsman in Ireland for about 10 years. So I knew the office quite well. I knew some of the people working there. I, I knew my, my, my predecessor, Nicky Forsey Amandouris. He had been formerly the, the Greek Ombudsman. So I was kind of familiar with, uh, with what was good about it, and I was also familiar with, with the gaps. And so I, I, I knew I had a very clear strategy mapped out that I just wanted to make people more aware of the office and that the cases um, that we did would have more impactful and, and more effective outcomes. And what does the role of the European Ombudsman entail? Well, an ombudsman for, for the for the EU does pretty much the same work as, as, as an ombudsman in any of the member states. So, but not in, in, in the EU, you're... you're uh, the administration is the EU administration, so it's all of the institutions, for example, the Commission, uh, the Council, which is the, the, the member state uh, uh, governments, the, uh, the Parliament, but the administration of the Parliament, not the political decision-making, it does. And then agencies like the European Medicines Agencies, which regulates the medicines we take, like the European Central Bank, which we're all pretty familiar with in this country, all of the regulatory agencies, and also Frontex, which is the border agencies, which protects the external borders of the, of, of the EU. So, uh, if you have a complaint, if you're making a complaint to the European Ombudsman, it can't be against the member states' administration. It has to be against um, an institution, uh, an EU institution. So let's say, for example, you're a small civil society, you're an NGO in Ireland, and you've got a grant for a certain project in a community, okay? Uh, you get the money and you start rolling out the project, and the Commission might think that you're not doing it properly, they want some money back, they have problems with, with the way you're doing it. You think that isn't fair? You make a complaint to the Commission. Uh, if they don't satisfy you, then you come to me. And what I do is exactly what I did in Ireland. I go and I ask the institution, well, what's your story? Go back to the complainant, go back and forth, and then eventually make an analysis and see uh, whether the Commission has done something wrong or that it has acted perfectly appropriately. And then I make a, a recommendation, if necessary, as to uh, redress. And are your recommendations binding? No, they're not. I'm not a court. And, but the vast majority of recommendations that I make uh, are accepted. I mean, it's, it's a much freer way of, of, of working in a way. You don't have the formality of the courts. It's also free to access. 
Um, and so you can have a lot of back and forth with, uh, with, with the institutions which you wouldn't normally have in, in, uh, in, in a courtroom and, and, and with the judge making, making uh, binding decisions. Um, some people ask me if I would like greater powers, but I think, you know, the, the whole idea of the ombudsman is that it's informal. And very often it's dealing with cases that you couldn't bring to court anyway. For example, if you write a letter to the commission and they don't answer you, I mean, you're not going to go to court, but you can come to me and I can pick up the phone and say to the commission, you know, you, you, you haven't rung this gentleman or you haven't been in contact with this gentleman, please do so. So a lot of cases that that are not um, capable of, of Really, wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be a good idea to take to take them to court because they're, they're they're so relatively small and minor. But at the same time, you can get uh, redress if you come to the office of the European Ombudsman. And if somebody is unhappy, let's say, with a decision of the Ombudsman here in Ireland, have they an opportunity to appeal that decision to the European Ombudsman? No, in a way that the, the, the title is, is a little bit misleading, European Ombudsman, because some people think that you can be the appeals body um, from the member state Ombudsman, but you're not. You're the, you're the Ombudsman for the European institutions. That doesn't mean that sometimes uh, we have had cases, you know, that, that might have been uh, with the European, with the national Ombudsman before, but, but in those cases there would be an EU law element to them. And that's why they come to us. So when I was Irish Ombudsman, sometimes I get complaints and I'd send them to the European Ombudsman. Equally, the European Ombudsman might get uh, complaints which actually had to do with the Irish National Administration and he would uh, send them to me to be resolved. And in your opinion, have Boris and the Brexiteers done much damage to the EU's reputation? Well, I suppose it's a mixed bag. Um, I, I don't think they've done much damage to the EU's reputation. I think I think they did damage to the EU's uh, uh, reputation in, in a... Uh, in a way that that painted a caricature of the a caricature of the EU uh, over over many decades. So the reputation of the EU, as seen by many people who eventually voted uh, for Brexit, was was not a was not a fair one. It was a caricature. It was the, the sort of the, the straight bananas and the crazy things that the EU is supposed to do, mm-hmm. um, which is not at all representative of the actual work that the EU does. And but unfortunately, by the time the Brexit referendum uh, came about, that image of, of the EU um, had, had kind of penetrated the mindset of many people in in the UK and, and it was too late to turn that around in, in the few weeks of, of, of a campaign. I think what the Brexit referendum uh, result, of course, has done, I think it's probably solidified to some degree the unity between the other member states uh, and that's a good thing. And I think as well when people saw what happened in what happened in, in, in Brexit, um, in, a lot of people re- regained those feelings of EU solidarity and, and particularly young people. I mean, in the months and a couple of years, even after the Brexit referendum, a, a lot of you know, new groupings, organisations were formed to promote and support the, the, the values of the, of the European Union, and particularly by young people. Now, many will say that the European Union is struggling to prove its relevance to the citizenry across the European states. In that respect, what do you think should the EU do to repair or enhance its reputation? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a big and broad question. I mean, I, I think, look, most, most people don't wake up in the morning worried about the EU at all. Uh, they get up and they're worried about, you know, the, the, the family's lives and working life, uh, you know, schools or health, all, all of those all of those daily issues. They don't think too much about the EU. And when they do think about the EU, um, I suppose what they, they, they want to trust that, that being inside the European Union enhances their... Um, that, that their lives in, in, in their member state. But I think the, the problem sometimes with the EU is that it actually doesn't communicate well enough with, uh, with individuals and, and, and with member states, people in, in the member states. I mean, I, I, I think that became very clear 
again, going back to the Brexit referendum, when I remember reading in the weeks and, and months after the uh, after the referendum, you know, people in the UK finding out to their surprise that the local community hall was actually funded through the EU or the, or the, the Erasmus year that their child is going on was also courtesy of the EU or the, the fact that, um, you know, their beaches, local beaches had been cleaned up was also thanks to the EU. An awful lot was going on within the, within the UK that had come about through EU laws and EU money that people simply weren't aware about, aware of. Now, that, that's not confined to the UK, but you can see if people aren't fully aware, made fully aware of what the EU does, and also how member state governments and ministers involve themselves in, in the making of, of, of EU laws when they, when they go to Brussels, then, you know, you're, you're in danger of, of having that, that sort of negative caricature of, of the EU um, develop in other states. And in your opinion, Emily, is the perception of elitism a problem where the EU is concerned? Well, sometimes it's it's other elites who are, who are describing the, the EU as elite. You're always going to get elites in any in any big uh, institutional organisation, whatever you want to call the, the, the EU and its, its institutions. Um, yes, but I but I think that that really goes back to my answer to to, to the to the question you just asked uh, prior to that one, which is which is about communicating what the EU actually does. I mean. And one of the things I, I decided to do after Brexit was, was to start uh, an, an award scheme for the EU uh, administration to sort of, you know, share best practice, but also to showcase some of the work that the various EU institutions and agencies do right across uh, Europe. And I mean, even, even officials who are working in the EU were themselves surprised to find out what their colleagues were doing in other agencies, bodies and, and institutions. And there's some wonderful work being done. I remember we, we gave the, the, the prize, overall prize, one year for work that was being done um, through rare diseases, whereby the EU Commission basically, instead of leaving member states, and particularly small member states, on their own to deal with perhaps just a handful of people dealing with a with a particular rare disease in the country, um, managed to get 19 of the member states to work together with their scientists, with their health personnel, so on, so that collectively and collaboratively they could put their heads together and come up with, uh, well, if, if not cures, but certainly ways to uh, to make the the progression of, of the disease less less severe in the individuals. And I remember at the time reading a, an article about, about a family and three young boys who had been struck down by a particular rare disease and, uh, and, and then, then looking at the work that was being done, you know, led by Europe in, in relation to dealing with these things. So that was just one instance of, of work that has been doing at EU level that probably very few people are actually aware of. And in terms of transparency, how does the EU perform? Well, again, a very broad question. I think in many ways much better than, than some of the member states. Um, I think the, the, the institutions are, are, are generally quite transparent. Where, where, where it tends to break down, though, is, is at council level. When I say council level, I mean you know, the, the ministers from the member states who go over to Brussels a few times a year to, to debate legislation in relation to various sectors from the financial services to agriculture and so on. And there it can be very difficult to see what's going on and essentially to find out what position your own member state is taking. That is very difficult. And that's important, uh, especially now because at the moment the EU budget for the next seven years has been debated and drawn up and argued over. But over the next few weeks we're going to see the proposals for 
this big climate action plan that the Commission um, is, is going to roll out over the next few years. And of course, people will want to see how is this going to affect this country? Are we getting money for this? Are we losing money for that? So those decisions are all going to be made by the member states, probably at, um, at, at council level when the ministers go over. So if people want to have their say, have their voice to try and influence this, they need to know what's going on at council level. So in general, transparency quite high at institutional level, but at the council, that's where it, it starts to break down a little bit. And in terms of transparency, what practices should state agencies here in Ireland put in place to ensure that they are transparent? I think uh, what was good about the Freedom of Information Act was that it, it, did, it did expand the number of, of bodies that came under it. It included the Gardaí, for example, for, for, for the first time, which was, uh, I think, which was, uh, which, which was quite important. Um, I mean, I think, you know, sometimes people talk transparency sort of as an abstract term, but actually what it is, it's about giving making institutions accountable to the public uh, and pay for them generally, and but also giving legitimacy to them. And, and above all, people need to trust. Um, you know, you could say that in, in, in the UK, because for the reasons that I, I, I've given you and for other reasons, you know, people had st- started to not to trust the EU because they, were, they, were, they, they found the narrative given by the pro-Brexit people a lot more compelling. So people trust is the glue that holds the union together. So really the, the EU and, and the member states themselves, you know, within their own within their own countries, in, through their parliaments and, and so on, they need to be constantly making the case to the EU because the EU isn't in Brussels, the EU is in, is in Dublin, it's in Bratislava, it's in Rome, Madrid, everywhere. That's where the EU is. People should stop trying to think of it just as concentrated in Brussels and really take responsibility for how the EU operates in the member states themselves. And of course, International Women's Day is coming up just around the corner on March 8th and you recently spoke at a Women in Leadership in a New Decade seminar. What was your core message at this, Emily? I suppose in a way I'm surprised that that um, female leadership is, is still a discussion point, you know, that it hasn't yet been taken for granted and just discussed generally under, under leadership. Uh, I mean, when I left school in, in the 70s and started working in, in the 80s, I mean, there were a lot of structural problems which, uh, you know, sort of went against the possibility of, of, of women not just working outside the home, but, but combining those. I mean, there have been huge changes since then. Of course, we see women in, in, in top posts right across, um, right across uh, many sectors of, of, of Irish uh, public and private life. But as I, you know, as I mix with, with, with the younger women and hear them and watch them and so on, I, I, do, I do find that there is still this cultural piece within a lot of young women, which is making them less confident than their male counterparts, even though on many occasions they, they, they beat them academically, I strip them academically and, and, and so on. And I find that even when I've done interviews over the years and a young woman comes in to be interviewed and, and she can be very apologetic and defensive about, about what she's done and isn't willing to be as confident about her achievements as, as, as men have. And I think until women sort of, until this, this particular culture of diffidence and, and modesty is sort of got out of uh, out of the female system, then, then I think we're still going to have a bit of a gap between women in leadership roles and, and men in leadership roles. And on that basis, what advice do you then have for aspiring female leaders? I think find techniques to develop your confidence, believe in yourself. If you do go for a particular job, make sure it's a job that actually suits your um, suits your own interests, suits your own talents insofar as you can. Because if you do that, then you're going to be good at it. And if you're you're good at it, then you're going to, you know, you're going to be propelled, hopefully, um, along the ladder of, of success. But also, 
I know this sounds a little bit airy-fairy, but I do mean to find your authentic self. You know, don't try and, you know, read a book on leadership and think I have to be X, Y, and Z. Find what is in you that makes you good, that makes you perform, that makes you happy, and then, and then find your way to success um, through that. I think, I think women tend to have to do a lot of work on themselves to make themselves more confident and whatever, because... I think, you know, I often see if you, if you put two people in a room and one is a man, he might be very tall and wearing a suit and whatever, and then you put, uh, you know, a, a, a woman in, 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 the same, in the same room, I think there's an unconscious bias towards the male uh, because, you know, um, that, that is the way culturally we've, we've been, a lot of people have been, have been brought up. So women, even before people get to their leadership piece or their, their, their professional role piece, they have to go get through subconsciously several barriers about how she looks and how she is and the fact that she's female anyway. So, you know, they're, they're still within the culture, a lot, of, a lot of barriers. Some of those barriers are in women's heads as well. I'm sure they were in mine uh, quite a few times uh, throughout my career, and I know I've had to work to, to, to get rid of those too. So that is, I do mentor a lot of, a lot of young women because I, I have four daughters myself in their, in, in their 20s, and, you know, I see, I see how they are in the workplace. I see the barriers that they come up against. So I can, I'm very much, I'm very conscious of, of the battles that, that some women still have to, to have that leadership voice heard. Of course, your position as European Ombudsman expires in 2024. Back on the 1st of June 2003, you received your warrant of appointment as the Irish Ombudsman from the then President of Ireland, Mary McAleese. So on that basis, have you any aspirations to become the President of Ireland in the future? You know, if I had a euro for every time I'd been asked that question, I'd be, I'd be a rich woman. I mean, I'd, I just went through a, an election before, for, uh, for the European Ombudsman, and one thing I vowed to do is never run for any election again, even for my local book club. So, I mean, that, that, that's your answer, Carl. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was the European Ombudsman, Emily O'Reilly, and I'd like to thank Emily for providing us with a rare insight into this important role. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.